I'm Greg, and you're listening to Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Hey, Polly. Hey, Greg. How are you? I'm doing all right. We are in for a treat today. Yeah? Yes. So a lot Maybe of- I'd like you to go. Hey, Polly, we have really boring guests on today. I might have to do that one. Okay. Day. All I'm right. going to look for the, that'll be the, the, the podcast where you interview me. And I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be boring. <laughs> well, you know, some people might feel, you know, cause we are Newport County, but uh, we, we do have listeners ex- ex- from around, around the globe, around the globe, but we have uh, a treat from the uh, prevention point Philadelphia. This organization, I mean, is, is doing some great work. All right, um, yeah. They are right in Kensington, um, the Kensington area of Philadelphia. It's in North Philadelphia. And it's not West Philadelphia. It is not West Philadelphia. Okay. I do not know if we'd see the Fresh Prince around here, but um, um, the the work that they're doing, I, I mean, I can see the, the Fresh Prince being an investor. Okay. <laughs> they are doing a lot of great things. Um, they are one of the hardest hit areas with a lot of the substances and this place is is doing some remarkable things. And I, when they agreed to be a guest on the show, I was excited. So Prevention Point Philadelphia, look them up. They're doing some great things. Awesome. I can't wait to hear about it. All right. So without further ado, and today joining us from the Prevention Point Philadelphia organization, we have Chad Gurgel, the Medical Social Work Coordinator. Chad, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Uh, to to get started, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Prevention Point Philadelphia? Sure. So Prevention Point Philadelphia um, was born out of the ACT UP Philadelphia movement in the late 80s, early 90s, which was HIV and AIDS activist group. Um, Prevention Point began as sort of underground syringe exchange movement, primarily operating out of cars in North Philadelphia. Um, And since then, over 30 years, it's sort of grown into a pretty vast and sprawling uh, public health organization that kind of transcends boundaries of location. We have multiple different locations providing different services. Um, We owe a lot to our former mayor, Ed Rendell, in 1992, signed an executive order that legalized syringe access in Philadelphia. Uh, it overrode federal laws, and these are still withstanding today, 30 plus years later. Wow. That's great. I love um, underground and grassroots. Yes. Definitely our origins, very <laughs> grassroots. Um, do you have to combat a lot of stigma? I know that's a big issue here when trying to get harm reduction and services to some people that we have to really fight stigma. Absolutely. I think a lot of doing this work and being in this neighborhood, there is at times it feels like all eyes are on Kensington, especially toward uh, political campaigns. There's constant media pressure here. Our patients are pretty consistently filmed without their consent and sort of scapegoated in a lot of ways um, throughout the city. From my perspective, I organize our medication assisted treatment program here at Prevention Point and where we kind of see that is the internalized stigma of folks who use drugs who are coming in for treatment. That sort of manifests as a way of looking at drugs like buprenorphine or methadone as temporary solutions 
because there's a moralistic value on abstinence. Well, to put that in practice, patients coming in for intake saying, I don't want to be on this medication forever. I, I want to use it right now just as a temporary solution to stop using fentanyl because I need to live a life that's free of all substances. When knowing very well that drugs like buprenorphine are really the gold standard and evidence-based practice for treating opioid use disorder. Now, what is a medically assisted treatment? What does that look like? Sure. So for opioid use disorder, there's two, three main drugs used to treat opioid use disorder. There's buprenorphine, which is brand name Suboxone or Sublocade. There is methadone, which is still regulated to OTP clinics where folks have to go to a physical location every single day to receive their dose of methadone. Um, there's also drugs like Vivitrol, which are opioid antagonists and can also be used to treat alcohol use disorder. So medication-assisted treatment is sort of a multi-pronged um, effort that focuses on providing medications that relieve symptoms, improve quality of life, and then adding other services like, in our case, case management or recovery support or just routine visits with a medical provider. And for our folks who are historically marginalized by the medical community, that can be a real bridge of like providing that kind of compassionate care to folks who are routinely turned away from, from different clinics, from different medical settings. Interesting. So uh, what I was hearing you say before, to go back, our, our stigma seems around medically assisted treatment here seems to be from the general public. But what I heard you say was that it's sometimes the patients that feel the stigma around it as well. Our, our patients present with internalizing the external stigma of things like medication-assisted treatment is just trading one addiction for another, for example. That's a common story that's kind of perpetuated throughout our society. Um, and those are really just foundational of our drug policy, our drug laws in general, of just very moralistic, very abstinence-based. Um, so our patients, you know, a lot of times, and I'm not speaking for across the board, a lot of our folks know that drugs like buprenorphine can absolutely save lives and are the gold standard of treatment. Um, but it does present um, in certain select patients that come into our program that view it as sort of a temporary solution, where the fact is some people need to be on this medication for, for life, and that is okay. It doesn't need to be viewed in this context of being a temporary solution to stop you from using an illicit opioid. Um, Interesting. Um, I took a peek at your website. I know you guys were peeking at ours. Um, <laughs> um, and you seem to have so many services. Can you tell us about some of your other services that you offer? Sure. So as I mentioned before, our sort of founding and still the, the, the foundation of Prevention Point is syringe access. Mm -hmm. So we are one of North America's largest syringe access points. Um, last fiscal year, we dispense almost 8 million syringes from our location. Just to kind of give context of, of what the need here in Philadelphia is. Um, in addition to that, that's sort of the entryway into a lot of our programming. We offer HIV and Hep C rapid testing five days a week. So folks can come in every 90 days and receive an HIV test. If they're interested in, in some medical care like pre-exposure prophylaxis, the drug to prevent the spread of HIV, um, folks can get access to that here. If folks are looking for hepatitis C treatment, we have 
to seven different rotating medical providers that are here every single day that can provide, can prescribe things like PrEP or hepatitis C treatment. We have a infectious disease doctor that is here and can treat HIV, manage HIV primary care. Um, we have a police assisted diversion program. We have a 60 bed shelter, which is right, right down the street from our main location on one of our major hospital campuses. Um, so much, I feel like I'm forgetting. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> but those are, that's sort of the, um, some of the highlighted programs that we have here at Prevention Boy. We also have a drop-in center. So even for folks who just want to escape the elements for a little bit, have a cup of coffee, sit and watch TV, spend some time there, um, we provide that. We work with the city during Code Blue and provide warming centers to bring folks out of the elements, um, which obviously saves lives. Mm -hmm. We have a post office. A lot of our folks, you know, the majority of our folks are living unsheltered, right? Don't have a, a primary residence to receive mail. We have several thousand open mailboxes here at Prevention Point, which is just a huge 5,000 uh, mailboxes. All right. I feel like we should mention that Hillary's in the background. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, I have a, a a lot of questions just based off of the, the last couple of answers you've given. Um, like with the eight million syringes headed back there that that were handed out, is this something that you know was it seen? Like, did you, was it gradual year after year, or was this like an influx after like did COVID bring an influx? Uh, did you did it? Was it seen coming or is this just right out of the blue? It went from one extreme to the other. I think to answer that question, I should paint more of a, a portrait of the neighborhood that, that we are in. So the community that we're a part of, Kensington, um, it's a neighborhood in North Philadelphia, um, was heavily impacted by deindustrialization in the 1960s. It sort of had this as I get, uh, as I said before, it seems sometimes like all eyes are on Kensington as it relates to the overdose crisis. Kensington was really always known for several decades as a neighborhood that, you know, back then it was that had the purest heroin. That was always the, it has a long-standing open air drug economy. This is where folks came to use drugs, where folks use drugs and hung around for a while. Um, so I say all that to kind of set the stage that there has been a need here for a really long time. We've been a part of this community for a really long time. Um, I don't want to point to any one place in time where we saw like an escalation. It was over the course of three decades. Mm -hmm. Obviously, as our services grew, we reached new community members. We have, we're servicing this community, but there's also a lot of folks from outside of Philadelphia coming in to access services and primary or just accessing syringes because in their county where they live, there is no syringe access programs. Um, I also want to add that in addition to the 8 million syringes that we dispense, we collected another 10 million. So just to put wow. that out there of the need in this community of empowering folks who are access, who are people who use drugs, people who inject drugs to not only, this is a place where they can come to receive syringes, but also 
it impacts the community by cleaning the streets, by bringing in the syringes that they use. We are a one-for-one -one exchange, meaning I bring in one syringe, I leave with one. Um, so in that way, that's sort of like the interplay between us and the community overall. Do you, if, if people come to you and are ready for treatment or recovery, do you have um, services for them or place to point them? Sure. So this is sort of where my work starts, right? So um, I run our medication-assisted treatment program, the STEP Clinic, um, which has been in operation in one form or another for about 10 years now. It started as just one provider who was here one day a week providing buprenorphine to folks who wanted it. Um, and that is, you know, grown into a five day, five, five days a week, open door policy kind of clinic where we operate on a walk-in basis. Um, we have five different case managers, a certified recovery specialist and other medical services navigators that sort of operate with, within our syringe exchange, within our drop-in center to kind of be ever present for folks who show up one day and say, I want to try buprenorphine for my opioid use disorder. Or I, we have, we are a level of care assessment center as well. So if folks are looking for more intensive treatment like inpatient detox, we can do the assessment for treatment here. We can coordinate transportation to get them to where they need to go. So we are always here. We don't, I think the important thing what sets our treatment approach maybe in a, in a different direction than others throughout the city is we don't require abstinence to be a part of our program. And that, I can't say that for other treatment providers in the city. Um, we truly embody the meeting folks where they're at, and that includes meeting folks who are still act in active use. As a social worker coming in, I wanted to be here, and that was sort of something that I intellectually knew coming into Prevention Point, but it was a big, I wanna say like learning experience of what that actually looks like to see somebody who is in active use and is not being turned away when they're already prescribed buprenorphine. In most, you know, most treatment centers, the model has been monitor urine drug screens. If the person returns to use, discharge them from the program. Mm -hmm. And that is just completely antithetical to how we do approach drug treatment here at Prevention Point. With that being said, as I mentioned, there's a lot of Kensington overall has grown not only from as prevention point has grown, but there's other treatment providers here in the neighborhood anymore. We're not the only game in town. With that being said, we try to encourage adherence to the medication at its foundation, right? We don't, we like to say we don't involuntarily discharge anyone from the program. However, we set the bar really low. You have to take some of the medication to be a part of our program because even that brings on more connection with their case manager, more contact with the medical provider. We can start working on the social determinants of health, getting folks uh, plugged into homeless outreach, get them on housing lists, get them access to treatment for hepatitis C or treatment for HIV. It really is a great access point for other services within Prevention Point within the city overall. Now, in this field and and seeing what you see, it, you know, burnout is always a, a huge concern. How do you, how do you decompress? How do you set yourself apart? I mean, you're saying, you know, five days a week, you're you're running this this program, you're seeing everything. How do you separate? How do you take mm -hmm. care of you? Yeah, I can say from 
from a supervisor perspective, I coordinate a team. Um, I super, I provide supervision for for you know other social workers, other case managers in this organization, and I feel like overall our leadership really knows how taxing this work can be. Um, nothing can really prepare you for what it's like to have an eight hour day at prevention point and feel like you did a lot of good work and you helped a lot of people, but then your day ends and we have to close the building down and there's still people out. There's still a line outside of our doors of folks who need services, who don't have a place to go, but our day is ending. And that can, that can really play a toll on, on just doing on all of us doing this work. So we really kind of set a really safe place for people to kind of process the vicarious trauma they experience every day here and acknowledge that it is inherently part of this work. But we also like celebrate things like in our in our MAT program, our medication assisted treatment program, we celebrate a lot of benchmarks that patients come in and that really kind of brings us in, makes us all want to come to work every day <clears throat> to see somebody graduate in their in their recovery or in their treatment, graduating to the long-acting injectable buprenorphine, supplicate, for example. That has been one of the largest areas of growth in our clinic over the past year. And every single time it happens, it's a celebration. It's a celebration when patients end, on the medical providers end, on the case managers. It's something that really keeps us coming back every single day. We have a volunteer in the coalition, um, a, a senior volunteer, it's a polite way to put, thank you, um, who it's very important for her to, for us to celebrate even our smallest wins. And um, we're always moving forward on how, how can we help more? What else can we do? And she always reminds us that we need to celebrate too, that that's mm. an important part of things. So we now have a celebration board. And when we have even small things, we write it, you know, we're celebrating. Yeah, absolutely. So important um right now here in rhode island we're struggling with um open beds for people to go to for recovery um warming shelters um shelters in general um we have a lot of people still on the street is that a struggle in philadelphia as well or yes yes absolutely um i think one of the one of the hardest things about you know I, I can't realize that it's been this long and I haven't mentioned that you know at the core of prevention points philosophy is harm reduction right we are a harm reduction organization and one of the hardest things about making referrals to different shelters different warming centers different treatment programs is we can't guarantee that where we refer folks will be treated the same way that they are when they're within our doors mm -hmm. we can't guarantee that other other entities will embody sort of a harm reduction approach, um, going back to how folks who use drugs are pretty historically marginalized and mistreated by um, different sectors within our city. So not only is there a shortage of things like beds for treatment or uh, apartments for rent or shelter beds, we can't guarantee that they would provide the same level of care that we do at Prevention Point. So it's a constant struggle. Mm. Now. I have a question and forgive me because this is going way back in our interview, but the internal stigma, and I wanted to ask this before, but then I wanted to ask about the 8 million syringes <laughs> as well. So forgive me for going back and forth, but how, how do you combat that? How do you, how do you help get them over that stigma? 
that internal stigma that they have. Specifically around drug use in general or or treatment? Both, actually. You know, it, how do you get around that? You, you have some people who are, no, I'm not going to do this because of this, or nope, I'm not going to go in there because of that. How do you combat that? Well, I think we've spent a lot of time talking about the, the services we provide that are catered towards people who are in inactive use. But I think the way in which Prevention Point approaches drug use in general, and we kind of like embody this idea, we normalize it. We don't sort of alienate folks who are still in active use. We don't view drug use as something that needs to be cured or changed in some way. We're, we kind of approach each individual at their own pace. If you're not ready, if you if you're not ready for treatment today, that's okay. You're still going to receive, be treated the same exact way, be offered the same services. We really embody this idea that drug use is not inherently wrong because it's not. That's at like the core foundation of what prevention is built on. Okay, thank you. And sort of in, embodying that in the services that we provide makes an impact in our patients' lives and can kind of, kind of combat that internalized stigma. Earlier, you spoke of police assisted diversion. I am very intrigued what that means. Sure. <clears throat> so police assist a police assisted diversion programs in our city are a way of avoiding incarceration for low level offenses like theft or drug possession. We have a location that is um, a couple blocks away from our main site that operates at pretty extended hours we get referrals from the police district of folks who are picked up for certain low-level offenses. They will meet with a case manager and be offered things like drug treatment. They'll be referred to services at the main building. It's a way of removing the perpetual cycle of incarceration, of repeat incarcer incarcerization. Sorry, it's a mouthful. Um, that's amazing. Um, we we have some great police forces around here. I don't, I'm not going to disparage anybody, but it's, uh, I mean, we're finding it hard to, we have some safe stations around here. That's a fire department initiative where you can go anytime. And, um, and they will get you a peer recovery specialist and get you where you need to be within 20 minutes. But here in Newport County, we're struggling with that. Like we're struggling with the police and fire getting involved in this aspect. Um, was that a hard lift? Was it hard to get the police involved in in this? I'm looking at Hillary because this it's sort of a little bit before my time, at least the origins of it. Um, and I don't know if I want to speak on just the police relationships at all. I, I understand. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Understood. Yeah, totally get I it. Think, but as far as the the current model of it, uh, implementation, it really looks the same way as we have. It's really a lot of recovery support and case management um, that it's a great way of removing folks from that that sort of repetitive cycle of incarceration. A great program. So you you mentioned how uh, Kensington is a uh, a spotlighted area, and because of the the known history. In reading an article, I, I read about the effects that xylazine is having in your community. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. So xylazine is 
a non-opioid, um, sorry, xylazine is a non-opioid anesthetic that's added to the drug supply in Philadelphia. With all the media attention around it happening now, it seems like it's something brand new, but it really has over two decades worth of history as being added to heroin supplies in different area. My time here, I've been here for almost four years. When I first started, it was well known in our community. You could go to certain corners where there are trank heavy bags. You used to be able to avoid it. You could seek it out if you wanted it. It wasn't ever present. Today, it is ever present. The Philly drug supply is a trank dope supply. There's been a lot of samples collected and analyzed nearly 100% of the fentanyl supply in Philadelphia coming out of Kensington is contaminated with xylazine, which presents sort of like endless challenges at all angles of prevention points work. Um, from the treatment perspective, buprenorphine does not treat withdrawal symptoms of xylazine. So we've had to be really flexible. There isn't a treat, there are no treatment guidelines for xylazine withdrawal. It is a unregulated gray market anesthetic. Um, doesn't produce similar withdrawal symptoms as traditional opioids do. We use certain drugs to kind of, as folks are transitioning from fentanyl to buprenorphine, we can prescribe adjunct medication that can kind of ease some of the symptoms, but they are very unpleasant and they make the induction period from fentanyl to buprenorphine much more challenging for our patients. In addition, skin and soft tissue infections have been on the rise as a result of xylazine contamination. It has vasoconstricting properties that really slow the process of healing. So simple cuts or abrasions um, can really turn into some pretty dramatic abscesses and infections. Um, last year alone, we had about 1,300 wound care visits. Our wound care clinic is operated by a few amazing nurses that are here a few days a week. It's one of our busiest clinic. Mm. Uh, some of our busiest clinic hours is folks coming in for rapid wound care treatment. Um, we can prescribe antibiotics, keep wounds clean, provide supplies. I don't think I've ever heard of a wound care clinic. I, I'm just mind blown on that right there. I don't think I've ever heard that as a program. No. So, Wound, access to wound care is essential for communities who, who inject drugs. It always has been. Abscesses around injection sites are common and they're part of a drug user's life. But really what we've seen as the xylazine contamination has rapidly increased in the past couple of years, the ever-present need for wound care is, is just dramatically increased. I'm just, <laughs> I'm amazed by that. Excuse me, sorry. I mean... I, I feel like urgent care is the closest thing I've ever heard, but I don't even think urgent care would. No, around here, I don't think urgent care would treat you. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming um, you don't need insurance to access any of your services. Wonderful question. So from another reason why something like our medication assisted treatment program kind of is so valuable and kind of different than many other settings is insurance is not a barrier to treatment. 
We have case managers throughout this organization that will work with folks to get them access to Medicaid, but it is not a barrier for that same day treatment approach. Mm -hmm. um, we have a, a 340B partnership with a local pharmacy, so we're able to actually pay for medications for the uninsured or underinsured. For wound care, for example, insurance is not a barrier. These are life-saving essential services. We will support folks in any way we can to make sure they get um, access to healthcare, but it is not a reason we turn anybody away. Yeah, I think here what would happen would be someone would go to urgent care and be turned away and um, would only get care once the um, the wound became so dire that they could go to the emergency room where they wouldn't get turned away. So yeah. kind of backwards, but yeah, I think that's what would happen here. I don't have the numbers in front of me either, but it is important to say that as we've seen the increase of folks with skin and soft tissue infections, abscesses, importantly, abscesses nowhere near where the injection sites were. That was sort of the first sign that we started noticing that there is a change in the drug supply that is causing this. When I first started here, I could see it gradually reflected back in patients who you know, were maybe experiencing delusional parasitosis, the idea that they have um, parasites in their body because they're finding abscesses and gaping wounds in different areas from where they inject. Mm. Not only have we seen an increase in folks coming in, presenting in those ways, the local hospitals, the, the rates of admissions for skin and soft tissue infections have been steadily increasing over the past couple of years. I, I feel like we need to keep our eyes open. I, I, I don't know if trending is, is the correct word, but um, I, I think things travel to us. Yes. Um, from organization to organization, I think we've been pretty transparent about just getting this information out there and especially on the East coast of this country that you know, Kensington is sort of this epicenter and the presence of xylazine as an adulterant to fentanyl supply is traveling throughout the country. It is showing up in different areas. So just for other treatment providers, other organizations to just be aware of that. So Chad, I'm interested. If you were hypothetically um, presenting to a new community about the importance of opening a facility such as Prevention Point Philadelphia. What are the what are three key programs that should be started first? Specifically to serve to serve folks who use drugs. Yes. Number one would be access to sterile injection equipment. Again, going back to this, the foundation of prevention point and the work that we're doing. Um, these save lives literally save lives, prevent the spread of infectious diseases. Um, it is crucial to have access to sterile injection equipment for any community that injects drugs. Access to low barrier treatment. As I said before, how we model our medication assisted treatment program is extremely low barrier. We don't use insurance or monitor adherence in the way that encourages discharge or have it be framed in a punitive way. We understand that folks may still be using drugs and can still be in some version of their own recovery. We kind of let the patient define the course of their treatment. It doesn't have to be this abstinence only approach. This is 
I'm trying to think of the third thing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was so, impressed. You came out with three things. <laughs> I mean, this is, as I mentioned before, we have Prevention Boy has an emergency shelter system and is crucial for bringing folks, giving their, we're all deserve, we're all deserving of housing, right? And Prevention Point has made a harm reduction focused shelter for folks who are experiencing homelessness. And that is incredible. But there's still a housing shortage in Philadelphia. We can, for all this work that we're doing, it still feels like an uphill battle because the rate of folks living unsheltered continues to increase. There's still a need, an ever-present need for shelter for our folks. And especially in the terms of treatment, trying to treat somebody's opioid use disorder in an outpatient, in an outpatient setting, knowing very well that they don't have a safe place to store their medicine or a safe place to lay down and sleep and hang their hat at the end of the day, that is like an, a, an absolute barrier to successful treatment. So shifting towards a housing for all model in any community, in any city is, is the direction that they need to go. Thank you. Are you funded by the city or grants or how? Because I would see that like if we were like, look, at we've got Chad's three successful ways to start uh, this organization. I know our director would be like, yeah, and how do you plan on funding this? <laughs> so I can say that Prevention Point is and always has been sort of a patchwork of funding, right? So there's always grants that um, we are working with. There is city funding. It's sort of this amalgamation of funding. Um, and that kind of makes up our programming. Um, we're very innovative and we're really, we have great relationships in the city and can come, we're kind of known as being the folks in the community doing the work. So we can come up with ideas and present evidence and show that we can do this um, and make it work. We built relationships that are for the past 30 years that have really gotten us to, gotten us to where we are today. I'm, I'm inspired. I'm, I am too. Yeah. I, I really am. Um, I'm sure you you when you looked at our website, you saw we're very rural here and um, but we are so looking to make change in this our little community and this is inspiring. It is. Chad, for those who may have questions or follow up after listening to our, mm -hmm. our podcast, how can they best contact you? Um so my contact information is on Prevention Point's website. Um, my, I just give my email address. My, my email <laughs> address is chadgurgel at pppconline.org. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Um, we are, I wanna shout out Hillary. Uh, we have, uh, we're pretty active on social media. Our website has all the different programs sort of broken down by a coordinator. So any different program has the associated coordinator that runs the program, as well as our executive leadership team. And your website is? Prevention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. PPPonline.org. Oh, okay. All right. Those are some really cool questions. Yeah. Some of those I've never heard before. Well, wow, thank, thank you. you. Hopefully that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> what the hell are these people talking about? Right? <laughs> I, I want you to know that I resist the urge for every time that you said West Philadelphia breaking out in the Fresh Prince song. Mm. 
Yeah. It's a big weekend for Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. I just came back from Arizona. Wow. And you would have thought that the Super Bowl was happening last week. There was yeah. Philly stuff everywhere. And I can't remember the other team. The but Chiefs. Chiefs. Okay. My husband's a big or used to be a big Phillies fan. So I could remember that. But yes. yeah, we're everywhere. Exciting. Yeah. My cousin's an Eagle alum. So. Oh, wow. Fortunately, you have to root for them. <laughs> I'm a Green Bay Packer fan, so it's a little bit difficult, but you know, if, if somebody's got to go besides Green Bay, I'll root for the Eagles. Wow, that's a big jump from Green Bay to the Eagles? That's a big jump. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I was from Wisconsin, but I live here now, so I have to be open-minded. I hear you. I hear you. Or I'll get beat up, basically, because it's <laughs> I'm a Cowboys fan. I can't stand the Eagles. Oh, no. But because, because of family, I have to go for it. But other than that, I would never vote for him. <laughs> never root for him. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you both for your time. Yeah, of course. Thank you. I've got a couple things I'm going to send you just just um, to to help sort of dumb, like illustrate yeah. some of the things you had talked about. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's so much here and... I've done a few podcasts before and it's always, it's nearly impossible to kind of get it all into one session. So Hillary can send you a real quick snapshot of like the numbers too, because the numbers kind of speak for themselves in a lot of ways. All, all that information will help us as we continue to try and push for trying to get something up, something, you know, a small representation of the work that you're doing over here. Yeah. Side of yeah please reach out if you have any other questions or if you need to talk through anything. All right. Very thank inspiring. You. Thank you both. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Have a good weekend. Be as well. Bye. Go Eagles. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm Polly, and you've just listened to Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable.